Greetings, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started today. What you are about to listen to is the audio version of a YouTube video that went up on the DPS YouTube channel concurrently with the posting of this here podcast on iTunes. So the TLDR is what was formerly known as the A-Side will now appear on a weekly basis on YouTube as a video interview. It'll be a little bit shorter than normal, but it will be available freely to the masses. And most importantly, it's going to be posted on YouTube where there are millions and millions of people who watch hours and hours of videos each day. We want to reach the masses, folks. You got to go where the masses are and they're on YouTube. So what was formerly known as the A-Side will be a YouTube video. I'll be posting these concurrently on the podcast feed as well. So you won't be missing these. But the idea is we want you to head over to YouTube on the channel. The link is in the show description and uh, go ahead and subscribe to that channel. Like this episode, share it with your friends. Uh, let's build that effort. I think we can reach a lot of people. This uh, little left socialist podcast niche is small and it's not growing very fast, to be honest. Uh, it's kind of inside baseball preaching to the choir, which I think is important, but we can do better than that. And speaking of preaching to the choir, for patrons of DPS Media, nothing will change. In fact, you guys will be the only ones who will be getting the traditional podcast version of DPS that you've all grown to know and love so much. I'll be recording about 20 minutes of video with my guests each week, followed by about a 60-minute podcast that will go up as what was what was formerly known as the B-Side, but that will now be the DPS podcast available to patrons only. So if you are unable to subscribe or become a patron of DPS, uh, please do enjoy these YouTube videos that are going to come out They'll be free to the masses and to the patrons. Thanks, as always, for your generosity. Nothing's going to change for you. You're going to be getting uh, the DPS podcast delivered to your feeds on a weekly basis that you all know and love. All right, so everybody enjoy this format change. Let me know in the YouTube comments what you think about this video. I think it's way more engaging. Uh, you get to stare at my mug and uh, the face of my guests live and in person. Uh, I hope it's an upgrade. <laughs> Let us know in the comments and enjoy this episode with Rene Rojas. Chile is burning, both in a metaphorical and literal sense, that is. This past weekend, over 1.5 million Chilean workers took to the streets to protest a series of austerity measures that have been violently enforced by the right-wing Piñera government. Neoliberalism, after all, was born in Chile. In 1973, with Augusto Pinochet's bloody coup over the Allende government. Perhaps then it's fitting that neoliberalism also must die in Chile. Joining us today to unfuck the discourse, to break down both the birth and the death rattles of neoliberalism, is Rene Rojas. Rene is an assistant professor at SUNY Binghamton. Very pleased to have him on this week's episode of Dead Punnett Society. Thanks so much for joining us, Renee. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. So before we dig into the birth of neoliberalism in Chile, let's talk about the current crisis a little bit. What was it about this specific wave of protests that caused it to catch on in such a big way? After all, people have been protesting various measures by the Chilean government for decades. Why did this particular set of protests spark off in such a big way? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, 
things started this time around with the announcement of a fare hike for the subway system in the capital. Um, the announcement was made at the beginning of October, beginning of the month. And almost immediately afterward, young people, students in particular, started jumping turnstiles and evading the fare or paying the, the fare. And they coordinated these activities increasingly and they organized these massive turnstile jumpings, right? Um, what was ironic about that was that the students themselves weren't affected by the ferry hike. The student rate stayed the same. Um, but it's an indication of how much frustration there is um, just on the part of regular working people and the, the poor majority of, of Chile um, that when something like this was announced, it immediately triggered a response. Now, what happened after about a couple of weeks of this dynamic, these collective evasions, as they were called in, in Chile, um, turnstile hopping, essentially, um, was um, about uh, a little over a week ago now, um, the students started getting a little more rowdy, and the response by the cops was uh, quite a bit more repressive until um, a Thursday night, not last Thursday, the Thursday prior to that, um, things kind of exploded. The students were treated very harshly by, by the police, um, and they responded with even more kind of disruption and more, well, you know, what was described as vandalism and destruction of, of property. Um, that was the Thursday night. And, and after that, you know, things just, the, 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 um, I should say that the protest just kind of blew over and, and exploded. Uh, they went from being a youth, predominantly a youth phenomenon, to being a generalized phenomenon. Um, I think one of the reasons that uh, the protest exploded with so much intensity, and really more than intensity, hostility, and outright hatred, class hatred, a hatred of, of elites and hatred of the political class in general, um, was because people had, had simply had it. Um, when the cops repressed the young people and the students, and they responded by um, damaging and causing all kinds of property damage to the the train stations, the, the, the subway stations, um, that kind of was the last drop, right, um, that, that made things spill over. And from there, people joined the protest and just trashed, outright trashed 80 of Chile. That's over half of the train stations in Chile's subway system. And from there, it just spread with, an again, an uncontainable fury. Um, people started uh, targeting large supermarkets, uh, especially, you know, um, chains owned by by Walmart and other large retail conglomerates. Um, they looted hundreds of these. They looted pharmacies. They set fire to, to infrastructure, to traffic lights. They tore up streets, set up barricades. And this all happened that first weekend of protest. I, I think one, again, the, what was really behind this was a sense that um, the Chilean political system just doesn't respond to popular demands and popular interest. It sets up a type of oligarchy where only um, you know wealthy people, um, profession, the professional class, and business elites are calling all the shots. And the vast majority of Chileans who work in the informal sector work for just miserable wages considering the cost of living, um, feel that correctly, 
that they have no no voice. They have no influence over policy. And so this is a process that had been accumulating over 30 years since, you know, the restoration of democracy in 1989, 1990, um, where people, again, increasingly felt that um, besides the inequality that was never resolved, which, again, Chile is one of the most unequal societies in the world. Besides that, there's a concentration of political power in the hands of a few, in the hands of elites, and having no real um, recourse, right? No uh, channel through which people could express their demands, can articulate demands and push for their demands, um, people exploded instead and made their demands felt in, in this extremely destructive way. I think one way to think about it, a metaphor, is it's kind of like a slave rebellion, you know, where um, you don't have any any voice, you don't have any rights, no one listens to you. And, you know, you can tolerate it, tolerate it for only so much until things just explode. The roof blows up and blows off and, you you know, you target the um, wealth of, of the elites and the property of, of the elites. Um, right. This is captured quite well in the piece that you wrote for Jacobin last week. You, you, you took a quote from somebody. I'd like to hear more about that. The title uh, is If We Don't Fuck Shit Up. We don't exist to them. So this sort of mass outrage, this lashing out at anyone and everyone that represents sort of wealth and power in that country is quite palpable, particularly this weekend with some of the fires and the deaths that resulted from those fires. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's the way I translated a very Chilean kind of expression, uh, which in Spanish is, si no no nos pescan. Um, I, you know, I had that in there and it, it wasn't my, it wasn't the original title of the piece, I should say. Uh, it was taken from the text, but yeah, that, that is what, what happened. Um, since then things have, have evolved and, uh, a more coherent though, not coherent enough, right. Set of demands and tactics have been, um, mobilized. Um, but that's really, that is really what set it off. Um, it happened after um, some reforms that did take place um, over the last five or ten years, right? Um, one of these reforms did slightly open up the political system, open up the system of representation, and uh, institutionally speaking, but it was just too little, too late, and it led to no real reforms, no improvement in people's um, you know, lives and their standard of living. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about some of those reforms of the past five to 10 years, but let's rewind all the way back to the origins of this crisis, you might say, or at least the, the most recent origins of this crisis. Chile, 1973. Some call this the first September 11th. September 11th, 1973, General Augusto Pinochet launched a murderous coup against the socialist Allende government, uh, infamously bringing in the era of neoliberalism. Uh, it came to Chile long before it came to the United States or the United Kingdom or elsewhere. Uh, Pinochet brought in the, Ch the, the Chicago boys who instituted a series of draconian neoliberal uh, economic policies uh, that were quite brutal. Uh, could you outline these events and give us a sense of how Chile in 1973 remade that society and in many ways uh, set the stage for what we see today? Yeah, I, I think that is, um, you know, as far back as we should go. In fact, we should go back a little further. The, the coup obviously occurred, as you mentioned. It's our September 11th, September 11th, 1973, at a particular moment in Chile. 
it three years after Allende had been democratically elected president. And Allende became president after decades of a building and rising labor movement and mass movements of, of popular sectors in general. Um, you know, this this kind of development of rising militancy, rising class organization uh, began really in the 40s, 50s, and the 60s, it just it took off. And so when Allende is elected in 1970, September 4th, 1970, it's not just an electoral phenomenon, it's a point in Chilean history where, the la where labor and the workers' movement is at its most powerful state and is extremely threatening to elites. And while some, you know, far leftists and some, you know, um, you know, ultra leftists, I, I would say, um, always knock Allende for being too much of a reformist for uh, for having too much faith in, in, in bourgeois institutions. The fact is that he ushered in a set of very deep reforms from from the beginning. And so this was extremely threatening uh, to elites. Now, he had been elected because. Elites had been divided in 1970 before a more, uh, between a more moderate, modernizing faction and a more recalcitrant faction. By 1973, they had come back together. And it was that reunification of elites and their parties that really set the stage for the military intervention. And when the military intervenes, the aim of the coup, right, is not just to depose Allende. It's not just to uh, mete out repression and punish uh, the labor movement and punish poor people. It's really to rid Chile of, the, uh, of this powerful actor, right? Of the working class and its organizations and its ability to push for radical reforms. Now, when Pinochet takes power in 1973, the transformations don't begin immediately. Um, the what happens immediately is a persecution and just brutal repression of workers and their organizations. Unions are smashed. The left-wing parties, in particular, Allende, the Socialist Party, and his coalition partner party, the Communist, right, and is uh, along with the MIR, the MIR, which was a even more radical movement that had a lot of youth backing and was to the left of, of the Allende coalition. So that's the first thing the military government does, just smash the organization and, the, and, and people themselves, right? Eliminate people and smash their organizations. It's not until the latter part of the 70s, right, that after Chile has gone through one crisis after another and the military regime can't figure things out, that um, doesn't, you know, hasn't been able to stabilize things, that it opts for this, you know, dramatic laissez-faire system, this radical fundamentalist opening up of the economy, deregulating, liberating, uh, li excuse me, liberalizing trade, etc. So um, in many ways, the Chicago boys were something of a Hail Mary uh, when Pinochet's original sort of more draconian authoritarian policies weren't working. Is that correct? Well, the Chicago boys initially didn't have much influence. That's right. In, in Pinochet's government, hmm. you have to you have to think about who would be the uh, or what would be the social sectors that would try to influence uh, the military's policies. It was going to be business. But business was had been tied to the developmentalist model that relied on state support, that relied on state protection, etc. 
Well, the problem was continuing in that vein, right, um, would potentially give workers more influence and more leverage um, by continuing to industrialize the, the economy. So it's not until lat the latter part of the decade, 77, really 78, that the regime makes this dramatic shift, this turn, brings in the Chicago boys, right, and says, let's try something new. Mm -hmm. Now, tell, tell the, our audience really quickly the origin of that name, the Chicago Boys, because it may not be uh, readily apparent to everyone out there. Sure. The Chicago Boys are, you know, a, a this new generation of economists, Chilean economists, uh, many of whom were trained in Chicago in the latter part of the 60s and the early 70s. So when Allende is in power, there's this cohort of, you know, the Zions of wealthy families, right, that had been sent abroad to study this new form of economics, which at the time was still like a fringe current, right, um, in, in terms of mainstream e economics, right? They followed the theories of Hayek and Friedman, which again, at the time were considered really out there, really fringe theories, but they imbibe it, they absorb it, right? And when Allende is deposed, they return, but they have to wait their turn. Right. It's not until Pinochet decides to try something different with the economy that he brings them in and they, you know, ha play this fundamental role, not only ideologically. There's a lot of emphasis placed on these new ideas and how they essentially restructured people's mentalities. It's more than that. The ideas that they um, brought into practice through the changes in policies actually restructured the material foundations of Chilean society. Right. By opening up the economy, there's a process of deindustrialization. There's a process of returning to primary commodities, right, of relying on comparative advantages, of disarticulating, right, of, of ripping apart these integrated industrial complexes, right, manufacturing complexes that the state had worked so hard to, to erect over, over the preceding decades. And so as a result of that, Right? You have two things. On the one hand, there's a new business class in Chile, right? By the early 80s, there's a new business class that now gravitates around these new laissez-faire policies. And on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, kind of the completion of the devastation of the working class, because along with industry and these manufacturing complexes, you had the fragmentation, atomization of the working class, the growth of the informal sector, right, that fur further atomizes workers, makes them compete against one another, etc., and really undermines any foundation for the recovery of, of the labor movement for quite, quite some time, right? And so what the Chicago boys do, on the one hand, is they, they press for these uh, policy changes successfully, right, in the late 70s. And then they're tasked with setting up the kind of legal and institutional framework to manage these transformations, right? And these are really brought together in um, Pinochet's 1980 constitution, um, which, again, in legal terms, in institutional terms, sets the framework for these changes in terms of the deregulation of 
the labor market, in terms of the privatization of publicly owned enterprises, in terms of the kind of charterization of public schools, in terms of the privatization of um, pensions, right, which today is a very, very big issue, right? Sounds uh, like the uh, the modern day Republican Party uh, wet dream, if you will, the, the, the agenda of, of all of their wildest dreams. Well, that's exactly it. For now, even in a country like the U.S. where there's, you know, no real labor movement, there's mm -hmm. never been a real labor party, it remains just a fantasy. It's a it's wet still dream. elusive, right, yeah. It's still the yeah. unicorn they're all chasing, despite that's the right. fact that uh, we're all in neoliberal hell. Uh, they, in Chile, they were able to go much, much further. That's interesting. That's right. And, of course, one of the reasons they, they're able to is because they do it through the barrel of the gun. Um, they do it, yeah. you know, by, by force. You know, interestingly, one of the architects of these policies, he's considered a Chicago boy, Though he was trained um, in, at Harvard, actually, um, but he, you know, again, he absorbed these these laissez-faire ideas at the time, is Jose Piñera, who is the brother of the current president, um, Sebastián Piñera. Um, he was instrumental, along with the other Chicago boys, in again pushing for these policies and then drafting these this new kind of charter legislation and the new constitution which is fraudulently approved in 1980 and which to this day remains, you know, the fundamental law of the land. So we're going to talk about these figures in much more detail on the B side. I'll be talking about that towards the end of our chat, how people can access that podcast. So let's move right along here. Let's get to the present. You've talked about the Piñera link there. Uh, it's quite direct. We'll uh, outline that more here in the coming uh, couple minutes here. But let's let's talk about the interim period between the restoration of democracy in the early 1990s up to present, where we saw the uh, the election of a right wing uh, government following uh, approximately 20 years of left wing rule of a soft left, the sort of post social democratic left. Uh, what, what was the nature of this left? I mean, you've had a 20 year reign of the center left in Chile. Why were they unable to? Uh, disentangle some of these Pinochet, you know, regime, post-Pinochet regime reforms? Why were they so, uh, why were these reforms so tepid? Why were they unable to uh, overturn this this unspeakably unequal Chilean society, which, as you, as you mentioned by some markers, is the most unequal in the developed world? Yeah. I, I, parenthetically, you know, whether Chile's belongs in the category of a developed country or not is is probably subject to debate but it's it's at least formally part of the oecd um and so that it's gonna well, i should say this chilean elites like to make that claim um i wouldn't make mm -hmm. um in any event let, yeah, it's it's not smart for a white guy to call a, a, any any nation in south america non-developed if you if you get what i'm saying so uh, I'll, I'll leave i'll <laughs> leave that designation up to you if you know what i mean it's seen as a marker of uh, colonialism or something to state the obvious that it's remarkably unequal and therefore hardly qualifies as developed <laughs> that's right that's right it's like the elites live a standard of living in the professional class that is is you know comparable to what um you know middle class and professional people experience in in western europe um the the other half the you know the poor majority mm -hmm. are living like central americans you might say so yeah it's this kind of hybrid situation but returning to your question um the the short answer you know to why they didn't overturn or dramatically reform these policies and the institutional framework inherited from the dictatorship 
is because they didn't want to. Um, it's as simple as that. The new um, governments following redemocratization were uh, coalitions of the Christian Democrats, the center traditionally in Chile, and the Socialist Party, Allende's party. Right? By then, however, because of the way that the left had been repressed and disarticulated, because a lot of these, and these are you know, largely very well-educated, middle-class professionals, and even elites, right? They had gone to Europe. They had been renovated, um, ideologically speaking, as it were. Um, and by the end of the dictatorship, they were no longer committed to socialism, not even socialism. They weren't committed to really deep reforms in the interest of working people and the poor. They had abandoned that altogether. Now, part of this is a deal they make with the dictatorship, right? They had to demonstrate that if they were given the keys, right, the reins of government, they would never try something like what Allende had tried. And so really when they returned to power, right, and by, like I said, by then the, the actual labor movement has been smashed, popular movements have been disarticulated, and the old coalition, the Communist Socialist Coalition, had been split up. Um, by then, their task is essentially to manage the system they had inherited from, from, from the regime. And they say this very, very openly, right? Now, of course, this they don't do so in the, uh, you know, um, starkest um, inhumane way that the dictatorship had done. They want to put a human face on it. And so there are policies that tended to reduce poverty. Um, social spending increased significantly, right? But all within very narrow margins. The margins, again, stipulated by the legislation and the constitution of, of 19, 1980. Right. And in this respect, they're, they're not that unique from the rest of the trajectories of the new left in that period. From the 1980s to the 90s onward, you saw this kind of triangulation uh, in the New Democrats and the third wayists and Tony Blair and the socialists in France and, and everywhere else across the, across the Western world. You see this kind of watering down of social democracy, not even really a post-social democracy or really ushering in of neoliberalism with a human face, as you just spelled out. Yeah. And, and for them, you have to think of what the benefits were for this new political class, the center-left political class. Well, the benefits for them was that they were governing now. They were in government. And as you said, they spent 20 uninterrupted years right, in power from 1990 to 2010. Right? The last of those administrations was Michelle Bachelet's government, her presidency, you know, who's now the High Commissioner for Human Rights in the, in the, at the UN. Um, but, you know, they gained enormously um, by being in these positions of power. They enriched themselves um, in a way that, you know, Chile's reputation of being a, a, a clean, not as corrupt, for instance, as Brazil, right, the, the political class, it's not quite true. Um, they made a killing, right? But I would say more than that, they understood that if social movements um, were to be revitalized, if the labor movement, right, became strong again, they were going to be challenged. Their recipe or their, their kind of blueprint for 
governance was to rely on the, the support of elites. And so that's what they cultivated. And they became, you know, the left wing of the neo of the broader neoliberal order in Chile. Um, in many respects, that helps explain why, you know, after 20 years of central left hegemony in Chile um, in 2010, Piñera is able to win um, his first election. He, he was, you know, he this is a second time in the, in the presidency. Um, a lot of it had to do with disenchantment, um, frustration, you know, with with the center left. It's not so much that um, working people and the poor voted for uh, Piñera, even though the right wing in Chile has always had some, um, you know, support among the poor. It, it's more that people just stopped coming out to vote um, the way they used to for, for the center left. And so that opened things up for him, not once, not just in 2010, but again in 2018 when he is elected for a second time. All right, fantastic. So this really sets the stage quite well for the next set of questions, uh, talking more explicitly about the present political crisis in Chile today. So talk to us more explicitly about the right-wing Piñera government. You've set the stage as to how they came about, how the center-left failed to really make any robust changes in that country. Anybody in the United States, this story should be very, very familiar with the rise of Donald Trump in the face of the utter banality of the mainstream Democratic Party over the past eight, over the eight years uh, preceding Trump's presidency. So tell us, who is Piñera? Uh, what is his base of power in Chilean society? And why was he elected if he is now so uh, just utterly unpopular? Yeah. So Piñera, as I mentioned, right, he's the brother of this uh, central figure, uh, José Piñera. More than that, he comes from uh, an elite family. His father was very close to Allende's predecessor, who was a Christian Democrat. So they come from the center of the political spectrum. And he represents a kind of new, um, more liberal, right, not so authoritarian right his party, uh, RN, Renovación Nacional, is this kind of, uh, again, center-right as opposed to the hard Pinochetista right. He's also someone who is a billionaire. I mean, he's a businessman who made a killing off the privatizations, right, during the dictatorship. Again, these are policies engineered by his brother and the Chicago boys. And so what he represents more broadly is right, that coalition that backed the dictatorship. The hard right, on the one hand, the old conservative um, authoritarian right, and then a new entrepreneurial liberal right, uh, right wing. Um, and that's how he, that's been his, his kind of bread and butter now, um, and this coalition's bread and, and butter for, for 30 years. Typically, you know, they garnered around 35 to 40, sometimes up to 45 percent, like the years he won of the vote. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't um, kid ourselves and say that there isn't a an enduring right constituency or set of constituencies that support the right wing. But as you mentioned, you know, any legitimacy, any support, any support that he he um had or that he's able to put together come election times has been severely eroded. Now, you know, we must say this isn't something that is only that is particular to the the, the right wing coalition. It's exactly what's been happening to the political uh, class across the board. When Bachelet, who's considered, 
you know, one of the most popular and um, beloved presidents of the 20, you know, of, of the post dictatorship period. Um, when she was in office, her, her favorability ratings dipped almost as low as, as Pineda's. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, there is a stable base for of support um, for the right. On the other hand, right, when people start to when the discontent starts to grow, when expect expectations aren't met, it quickly evaporates. And that's what's happening uh, right now. But of course, you know, um, in a supercharged way, right, it's like a loss of legitimacy, a crisis of legitimacy really on steroids right now. So the demands that are being made by protesters are quite diverse. Uh, they range from the president's resignation uh, to the proposal of a new constitution, something that is perhaps long overdue. Talk much more about that. Uh, there's a serious critique of the media. Some of these uh, radio stations are being attacked, uh, and rightly so. There's a there's a veritable blackout when it comes to coverage of this unrest within the country in many ways. Although, of course, social media and the internet is able to some in some ways transcend that. Uh, there's obviously an rapprochement of the police and the military's behavior, although they have been relatively uh, restrained so far, uh, although we must say they have not yet been tested because the curfew has yet to be really resisted in a serious way. I think people suspect that if the curfew uh, were resisted, the bloodshed would uh, increase exponentially. But I digress. How likely uh, is it that these demands uh, will materialize in any kind of meaningful uh, results uh, and, and what are the political forces that exist on the left right now in Chile that are poised to benefit from this mass anti-austerity sentiment? Surely these kind of milquetoast center-left politicians that reigned over the past two decades aren't exactly ready, willing, and able, or nor do they have the constituencies to, to capitalize in the midst of this real radical anti-austerity sentiment. Yeah, let me, let me just say a couple of things. I'm not sure if by way of correction or not, but I wouldn't describe the protest as anti-austerity protest. Um, they don't really respond to harsh cutbacks in social spending. Social spending in Chile has been steady, and in fact, it's been expanding very modestly. But it, it's been expanding um, over the years, even even when uh, the right wing has been in, in office. And so, just I wanted to point that out. And by the way, I think that's one of the things that sets Chile apart from um, some of the other cases, some of the other um, experiences that are that are happening right now in Latin America. Now, I've seen a Chilean phrase being tossed about that you might have just explained the meeting. Something about bread today, hunger tomorrow. Is that the kind of um, lack of faith in these social uh, social welfare programs that you just talked about? Yeah, I mean that that expression really uh, exp- you know communicates this frustration, like when we're able to get through to the political class and they hear the voice of poor people and working people, not through institution, regular institutional channels, but through mass protests, right? The response has typically been, been you know, a few more pesos for bread, but mm. it doesn't solve the so, underlying problem, the underlying hunger to, right. to, you know, continue with the metaphor. I think that's what that's getting at. Now you hear, um, going back to your main question, you know, you hear a lot and even from among the activists that are that are involved in the protests themselves, you you hear this refrain over and over that there isn't a set of demands, that there is no coherent strategy here. And I, I think that's only partially true. There is a clear set of demands, or at least I should say one very clear set of demands, which has been building and coming together over, you know, uh, 10 or so years. 
And that's essentially, right, a an abandonment of the neoliberal model, this orthodox neoliberal model, and a call for the state to step in and offer more protections, offer more social rights um, for, for, for working people. I mean, uh, that may sound too nebulous in, in general, but that's essentially what people are asking for. Now, these demands, again, they've been coalescing now for about eight uh, to 10 years. What, what's happened over the past few years? Well, finally, right, after decades of movements being defeated and dormant, there's been a re revitalization of mass protests in Chile, beginning um, with the student movement, the first episode of which was 2006, the next massive explosion of protests was 2011, right? And um, since then, there have been all other kinds of protests as well, from the indigenous um, communities in the South, right, trying to reclaim uh, land and forest and water resources, to um, the re retired workers and the elderly, you know, fighting for dignified and re-socialized pensions, right? So this has been brewing in that sense in, in the background. Now that things have exploded, however, right, um, they, the, there hasn't yet been an opportunity, right, to fashion a, to, you know, to, to design, I should say, right, a clear set of demands with a clear set of tactics as to how to push them through. And I think that's what where we're at right now. But, you know, underlying this all, unmistakably, right, is a demand for the political class in Chile, right, to be swept away and for a new set of governing institutions um, to replace the existing neoliberal state and um, a state making it a state that actually, again, um, includes some basic social rights, some universal rights for people, including pensions, socialized pensions, including real public and, you know, equal education for all, um, including labor rights, right? The right to collective bargaining, which don't exist in Chile um, today, uh, and a set of other measures that people are calling for. The challenge is, right, how to actually push those through. Right. Because you, one thing that is correct is that you do see all kinds of demands being made from, for instance, um, get the military off the street to um, depose or, you know, have uh, Piñera resign um, to on the kind of I think the the most comprehensive end of these demands is a constituent assembly to essentially refound the institutions of the state. And I think that's the solution. We have to find a way to actually in, um, initiate a real process to change the constitution with direct and central participation of labor and of social movements. It seems like in, in 2019, at this late stage in, in the history of neoliberalism, uh, some of the more traditional ways of looking at mass uprisings uh, just don't work anymore. Look at the Gilets jaunes in, in France, uh, the, the kind of inchoate experience that you've just outlined in Chile. Uh, things are much more muddy uh, than they perhaps were over the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, different uh, people's sentiments and aims and goals aren't always as... 
uh, transparent or predictable. Uh, but one thing is for sure that we need much more. Uh, they, they're demanding representation in the political institutions. And that seems to be the, the most important key takeaway here, which leads me to my final question. How might these protests resonate throughout South and Central America, particularly given their somewhat uh, opaque and perhaps inchoate aims that you, like you've just uh, spelled out? The pink tide has stalled over the past several years, most visibly in the case of Maduro's Venezuela and the high-profile defeat of the left by Bolsonaro in Brazil. Uh, will this round of protests in Chile and elsewhere across South America serve as, as a much-needed shot in the arm? To the rest of the left, not only in Latin America but across the world. I think there's no there's no doubt that not only um, are our neighboring countries right observing what's happening very closely, um, the whole world is. And the lesson I think is that given the constraints of neoliberal politics and neoliberal um, the neoliberal state that rules over most societies, on, uh, you know. Um, on the planet today, um, the answer lies in mass disruptive mobilizations. And the other lesson, I think, is that if you manage to do that, you can really, really um, place governing elites on the ropes and start to make serious demands, start to force them to consider a set of concessions that, for instance, in Chile, just two weeks ago, no one would have even dreamt of. Right. Um, and so I think that's what's going on. I would say that in terms of, of what's happening in Latin America, the rebellion, this uprising in Chile represents really the kind of second coming, if, as it were, of of the of deep political crises or of, of a deep political crisis of the neoliberal order. Right. The first one was you know, around 15 years ago, the turn of uh, the century. Um, and that ushered in the pink tide. Well, now we're seeing, again, a second, very deep crisis of the neoliberal political order. Elites, you know, have lost control, um, are not able to govern as they were anymore. And it's no, it, it should come as no surprise that these massive um, shifts or these expressions of instability, and in the Chilean case, the emergence of this mass movement, right, um, are occurring in countries that kind of avoided the pink tide turn 15, 20 years ago. So you, Mexico, for instance, right, where things happened, you know, through an election that swept away the old political order and voted into office AMLO, you know, we can have all kinds of criticisms of what he represents and what he's been able to do in Mexico since being elected. But essentially, that's what happened there. And in Brazil, of course, there was a similar phenomena that occurred. Um, but, you know, when the political class was swept away, uh, a hard right emerged in its wake. And now you have Chile, right, where um, fortunately, it's it's the people, it's the working poor who have taken the initiative and they have the ruling class on the ropes. So a second wave of the pink tide, perhaps. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what shape this is all going to take, but you've given us a wonderful outline to help us understand things as they arise. It is as uh, I think as the pundits, the dead pundits like to call it. It is very much a uh, fluid, if not kinetic situation out there in Chile and across Latin America 
as a whole. Thanks again, Renee Rojas, assistant professor at SUNY Binghamton. You've given us quite a bit to chew on. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right, everybody, if you'd like to hear a longer, more uh, deep cut version of our conversation that we've just had here on YouTube, check out the video description below. You'll see the link. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and you will get access to the long version audio only podcast form of our conversation, which is forthcoming. We're going to go deep into the history of Chile, the uh, Pinochet coup in 1973, some of the interpretations that we have hinted at over the course of our chat today. And uh, you're not going to want to miss that. So check out that link. Thanks for watching. Be sure to give us a like and subscribe so that you won't miss future videos. They're coming out on a weekly basis from Dead Pundit Society. Thanks again for watching.